Welcome to the reading of Dr. Richard Ganz's book, Psychobabble, The Failure of Modern Psychology and the Biblical Alternative, copyright 1993 by Richard Ganz. This book is read and distributed with the author's permission. This MP3 audio file is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, which offers a large selection of free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed resources on the web at swrb.com. We continue our reading on page 141, chapter 14, Moving Toward a Free Will. What do we mean when we talk of the will? Simply put, the will is the power to choose. This power involves much that can change our lives. We can choose one thing and refuse another, approve or disown, enjoy or dislike, embrace or repudiate, reject or accept, command or forbid, deny or affirm, persist or give up, and so on. From the human perspective, we are what we choose, because what we choose, we do. Some choose for the good and to their blessing. Some choose for evil and to their cursing. The natural man chooses in a way consistent with his desires. A Christian, however, often wills or chooses something on a fleshly level, so to speak, that he wouldn't truly desire on a spiritual level, because often the old carnal desires conflict with the new spiritual desires. But the Christian is called to conform his desires to those of Christ. A non-Christian doesn't understand this kind of choice, but it is an integral part of the increasingly sanctified walk of a believer. Christ made the same kind of choices. In Gethsemane he prayed, Not my will, but thine be done. He separated desire from will, for he said in effect that he did not desire the cross, but rather a way of escape. As a human, Christ was repelled by the anticipation of the wrath of a holy and angry God. Yet he submitted his own will to the will of God. Not my will, but thine be done, were the words of one who determined to place his desires in subordination to the will of another. We Christians have to learn that our own desires can be modified. Desire functions as a subset of will. Our controlling reality is the will in subordination to God. We must choose the right way in spite of our desires. Praise God, we can and are changed to the extent that God works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13, King James Version These concepts, willing and doing, are not separate, but are one idea joined together for emphasis. What a person wills, he does. What a person does, he wills. Of course, this principle operates only within the boundaries established within the scriptures and creation. I can will with incredible determination to fly, but without an artificial apparatus I cannot fly. A kind of magical thinking is promoted in some Christian circles that they can name it and claim it. According to this school of thought, if I set my will to get something with enough determination, $5,000, 
the publishing of this book, or whatever, it will happen. This mistaken notion is simply an excuse for superstition. Willing is involved in making decisions, either to behave righteously or to sin. The Bible teaches, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James 1:14 and 15 The deed was birthed in a desire. We could say that this desire develops a determination. Connected with the determination is a degree of both deliberation and motivation. Jesus points out how our deeds are reflections of what goes on in our hearts. Matthew 15:18. To recognize desires and motivations that are contrary to Christian living is important. Lust, desire, gives birth to adultery, deed. Greed, desire, gives birth to theft, deed. Rage, desire, gives birth to murder, deed. The thought behavior, attitude, precedes the action. Adultery does not suddenly occur, overtaking one by surprise. Desires have been aroused. Motivations are strong. Regardless of what the adulterer says, he or she wanted, willed, the adultery more than purity. The desire for innocence, righteousness, may even have been present throughout, but it wasn't strong enough to cause him or her to desist. It was one of several conflicting desires, leaving the person in a state of ambivalence. Rhonda's story illustrates the point. She said she wanted to stop drinking. I had no reason to doubt her except that her husband said she was drunk all the time. Rhonda likes the idea of sobriety, but she loved drunkenness more. Let me put it another way. Rhonda hated the guilt of drunkenness. It was an obvious sin, but she wanted to drink more than she wanted sobriety. I know this because, conflict and all, Rhonda was drunk more often than sober. You ask, if this is so, why did Rhonda ever come to you for counseling? Rhonda didn't come for counseling. She was brought, still claiming that she had no problem, even though while drunk she'd driven her truck into a ditch, almost killing herself and her daughter. You ask, how could she deny that? This will be hard to believe, but since she and her baby were unhurt, she saw no problem. Denial works mightily in such people. Rhonda was drunk, and she really only wanted to stop the guilt, not the drinking, until a cigarette dropped during a drunken stupor touched off a small fire, again almost killing her and her child. At that point, Rhonda was forced to see the problem. She almost lost her child in the courts because of her negligence. Finally, she wanted her baby more than alcohol. For several months, she stopped drinking. As soon as the legal pressures eased a bit, however, she convinced herself that she could drink responsibly. She wanted no more counseling, and it was not long afterward that she lost her child to her husband who had left her. Conflicting motivations exist in almost every decision we make. We want to do the right thing, but we don't want to spend the time, money, or effort. We are tempted to do the lawless thing, but it will cost us fellowship, unity, and innocence. 
This conflict of motivations is often manifested in inaction or indecision. Inaction is also willing, willing not to act when the decision is too demanding. In some scenarios, this may not be the worst decision. At the least, it buys time to think and reevaluate alternatives. The problem comes when inaction becomes a habit or a coping mechanism. Copping out appears to avoid stress, but it also avoids the rewards and gratifications of a life actively and rightly lived. In reality, it only postpones stress or substitutes one kind of stress for another. It may, for instance, avoid the stress of social engagement, but it cannot avoid the stress of self-knowledge accompanied by the inevitable self-judgment and self-condemnation. So then, the process of willing is certainly more complex than just making a decision, although every decision is an act of will. We assess whether a situation is potentially pretty and pleasant or ugly and bothersome. We determine whether our action will bring good or bad consequences. These consequences may be difficult to assess. They may be so far in the future that the decision-maker feels safe in ignoring them altogether. Thus, a drunk confronted by a bottle of liquor is more prone to drink because the thought of its immediate pleasure is stronger than the thought of guilt afterwards. People by nature want things now. They do not like to defer their enjoyments to the future. Without other variables, we will always choose the immediate pleasure. The Christian faith, however, is a real variable that sets this pattern on its head. Deferment of gratification is inherent in Christianity. We have a kingdom waiting to be revealed. Ours is a heavenly citizenship. The Lord himself promised, I go to prepare a place for you, his father's house. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 2 and 3 In view of the eternal glory that far outweighs all his light and momentary troubles, beatings, imprisonment, chains, desertion by friends, sleep deprivation, hunger, thirst, nakedness, and so on, Paul states that we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 Historically, Christians have been the ones in society who have deferred gratification. They have invested their lives rather than squander them kill time. They have used the present to gain future rewards. Christian faith and obedience produced an active and decisive willing that was in every way contrary to the natural affection or inclinations, yet not contrary to the way the reasonable mind wills. The future pleasures of heaven and the kingdom were seen by Christ's followers as sure and certain. Thus, opting out of immediate gratification was a postponement, not a pain or a loss. In addition to our ability to fix our eyes on the unseen and receive succor there, our determination to abstain from immediate gratification 
is affected by other factors. The degree or strength of temptation is a powerful determining variable. A person is more apt to will for the good when he is removed from the evil. A person is more apt to be faithful in the arms of his wife than when out of town in the company of his gorgeous co-worker. A person is more likely to choose sobriety while in his home than while sitting with friends in the local pub, watching them guzzle beer. To minimize temptation is irrefutably wise, good, and reasonable. To do so is not an indication of character weakness, but of moral strength. We all have weaknesses, areas where we are in danger of stumbling. To have learned from past failings and cut off the progress towards sin at the assessment level indicates maturity and a God-honoring choice for righteousness. To maximize the good, whatever is true and good and lovely, also is wise, because there is a sense in which man can only choose what he deems at that moment to be the most worthwhile. Great energy should be aimed at redirecting or rightly directing the will. What is obedience? Is it not the compliance and consent of the will to commands, followed by the execution of those commands? If education in the law of God is lacking, what moral basis does the will have for choosing the good? Knowledge of the law of God, or lack of it, will influence every stage of behavioral decision. God's people need to know not only what is expected of them, but also the tools established in Scripture to fulfill those expectations.